Thank you, Hallett. Good morning. If I asked for a show of hands this morning, and I, I won't do that, but if I did and I asked how many of you had a loved one, perhaps a son or a daughter, a mother or a father, a brother or sister, maybe some other family member, or even just a close friend who had either strayed from a relationship with the Lord or maybe doesn't follow the Lord at all, my guess is that nearly every hand in the auditorium would go up if I asked you that question. Based on my conversations with many of you and what I know about many of your family and your life circumstances, I think this is something that is on the hearts and the minds of most of us, something we think about often. It's a top concern for us. We care about where our friends and our family spend eternity, don't we? This morning, I'd like to extend some hope to all of us who would raise our hands this morning if I asked for a show of hands. I'd like to help us remember that our loved ones are loved not just by us. They're loved by the maker of the universe. And you know what? It's hard to imagine this because we love them so much, but God loves them more than we do. And while we may feel some sense of responsibility to facilitate them coming to Christ, either for the first time or maybe their return to Him, God in His love is pursuing them. Sometimes it's important to remember that God has tools, He has things at His disposal to move in the hearts of people that you and I just don't have. There's the story of a farmer who had three sons. We'll call them Jim and John and Sam. No one in the family ever had time for God, never attended church. The pastor and the others in the church tried for years to interest the family in the things of God to absolutely no avail. Then one day, Sam was bitten by a rattlesnake. The doctor was called, and he did everything he could do to help Sam. But you know what? The outlook for Sam's recovery was pretty dim. So the pastor was called, and he was informed about the situation, and he arrived, and he prayed this prayer. O oh, wise and righteous Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you sent this rattlesnake to bite Sam. He has never been inside the church. It's doubtful that he has in all this time ever prayed or even acknowledged your existence. Now we trust this experience will be a valuable lesson to him and will lead to his genuine repentance. And now, O oh, Father, will you send another rattlesnake to bite Jim and another to bite John and a really big one to bite the old man? For years we've done everything we know to get them to turn to you, but all in vain. It seems, therefore, that what our combined efforts could not do, this rattlesnake has done. We thus conclude that the only thing that will really do this family any real good is rattlesnakes. So, Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes. Amen. It's clear that only God has bigger and better rattlesnakes. Now, this may seem like an odd prayer, but... I think many of us would have to admit that we've prayed similar prayers in the past. Maybe they didn't have anything to do with rattlesnakes. We didn't pray for God to send rattlesnakes to bite somebody. But those we pray for may be people we've prayed for for many, many years, many times over many years. And sometimes when we pray for those people, we might find ourselves praying something like this. 
God use everything at your disposal. Use all your tools. Use all your weapons of love to bring these people to you, to draw them into your kingdom. Any of us prayed prayers like that before? I bet you most of us have prayed something like that. Many of us have prayed prayers such as, do whatever it takes, God. And I've thought about this recently, the idea that God has bigger and better rattlesnakes, and it's kind of caught my attention. God can do things that I can't do. Yes, I can cooperate with him through prayer. I have spiritual weapons at my disposal too. But you know what? They're his weapons. And I believe the warfare analogy here is very appropriate. 2 Corinthians 10 talks about the weapons of our spiritual warfare. We know this passage. It's a very familiar passage. Beginning with verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It says pretty clearly here that they're not our weapons, they're God's. Verse 4 says that these weapons are not the weapons of of the world. They have divine, or that means they have godly power. In the context of this passage of Scripture, we're just using these weapons. Now, I realize that this passage is talking about our use of these weapons and not God's use of them, but again, they're His weapons. So I think it's safe to say that God can use His own weapons more effectively than we can use them. He has bigger, better rattlesnakes. It's also true that God has weapons or tools we can't use. Only God can send rattlesnakes. In our dependence on God, these weapons described in 2 Corinthians are able to demolish arguments and every pretension of those who oppose or are opposed to the gospel. The object of the warfare described in this passage is to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And in the context of what we're looking at this morning, These weapons are used as God is fighting for us, using his weapons in the battle for our souls. Now, if we're already followers of Christ, then this is the battle to sanctify us into the image and likeness of Christ. This passage says these weapons are able to pull down strongholds. Now, strongholds for the purpose of our discussion this morning are those things in which sinners entrench themselves against all truth, everything that opposes itself to Christ. Now, in this passage, it probably refers, because it was written to the Corinthians, it probably refers to the learning, to the eloquence, the philosophies, the worldviews that the Corinthians had. And they prided themselves in these things. But, you know, we see these kinds of things very clearly at work in the world today as well, don't we? The Greek word here for stronghold means to fortify, and it can mean a castle. You've heard the phrase fortress mentality? Well, that might be a good paraphrase of the Greek here. Don't we all know people who create a sort of fortress in their minds and in their lives against the things of God? This passage also notes that these weapons are effective against everything that sets itself up against or exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
So God has weapons, and they are his weapons. They may or may not be similar weapons to those he may enable us to use by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the context of the things that God can use to draw unbelievers to himself and to use to shape believers into his image, they are weapons and they are used in his love for redemptive purposes. And since I really believe that his purpose, God's purpose during this phase of history is redemption, and since Scripture notes that those weapons are able to pull down strongholds and take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, I think it's fair to call these weapons weapons of love. They're all in God's love arsenal. In thinking about this idea, I came up with five weapons. There are five key things that God seems to use both in the lives of unbelievers to draw them to himself And though it's perhaps used in different ways, these weapons may also be used in our lives to draw us closer to him and to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ. I don't claim that this list is anywhere close to all-inclusive, but I do believe that as you think about the different weapons that we do examine this morning, you'll find that they might fit into a subcategory, at least, of what we're looking at if you think of something that I didn't think of. Another thing that's important to remember is that God will almost always use one or more of these things simultaneously, and sometimes he'll use one right after the other. For example, I believe God's blessings. This is one of the weapons we're going to look at, God's blessings. I think they're one of the things he uses to draw unbelievers to him. But then I think, how can blessings be effective in the life of an unbeliever when they are very unlikely to acknowledge the source of any blessings in their lives as being from God. Yet I also believe that God uses other weapons in conjunction with his blessings as part of his total plan to draw people to himself. Just as armies use a variety of weapons, you have guns, you have rifles, you have bayonets, you have machine guns, you have grenades, you have bombs, you have missiles, and on and on. I believe God has a variety of weapons that he uses. So here are five key weapons I believe God uses on a regular basis. There are circumstances, that's the things in life that get our attention. There's conviction. There's history, the idea that we need to remember. There's blessing, the good things God does for us and allows us to enjoy. And there's time, and that usually translates into his patience with us. Let's take a look at these one at a time, and I need to note that these aren't in any particular order of importance. First, we have circumstances. I think it's pretty clear, if you've been following Christ very long, you have to see God uses circumstances in our lives. That might include rattlesnakes. Circumstances include both the good and the bad, but perhaps especially the bad, including tragedy and suffering, or disappointments in our lives. In the believer's life, these circumstantial things can be seen as discipline. It can be pain. It can be physical or emotional pain. But the bottom line is that God uses these things to get our attention. Just as the rattlesnake got this farmer family's attention in the story we looked at a moment ago, God uses things such as these to break us, to twist us, to shape us, to mold us. 
In the case of unbelievers, God often has to break through layers of strongholds. And this might require some very difficult circumstances. To overcome a stronghold, a fortress, think again of the warfare mentality. It might take a lot of weapons. It might take a lot of pain or suffering, sometimes death. It might take a lot of ammunition or even heavy artillery. Now, if you're a close follower of Christ, I really believe that your heart is like a soft piece of fruit. See this tomato? What happens if the point of this pin impacts this tomato? goes right in. It penetrates immediately, doesn't it? You can't even see the pin. It's so small. That's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. It penetrates very quickly, very easily. So if your heart's like this soft piece of fruit, all God has to do to convict you is just a little pinprick, and you're going to listen, and you're going to respond to him in repentance. But each sinful choice puts layers of spiritual hardness onto our hearts, much like a callus on our skin. And as that hardness accumulates, the pinprick no longer is able to get our attention. Now, Andy Abrakta experienced this. Our brother, sadly for him, had a life of sin that wasn't just sin, it was a crime. Andy and I talked often about this. I'm sharing this with his permission. About after his arrest, before he went to prison, why, when there are so many men who were doing the kind of thing for which Andy was arrested, why are there so many men who never get caught and Andy did? Not just caught, but sentenced to prison. His life literally altered forever. Well, Andy will tell you that it was because God loved him enough to get his attention. It took a situation as hard as a jackhammer to get his attention, a jackhammer to his heart, because God had to break through years of hardness that he had built up. So you think of the piece of fruit we just had, and then you think of this rock, okay? Well, I try the pin on that, it's going to probably break the pin. So you try something bigger, that's not enough, is it? So what do you have to do? You have to get the hammer out, and you have to use the hammer. Now, I, I was going to go far enough in this analogy to actually try to break this, but then I had this vision of rocks flying through and hitting Nancy Harkins in the second row down here in the face and didn't want to do that, but you get the idea, don't you? What does it take? What does it take? Scripture's clear that God will use these kinds of things to bring people to himself. His desire is that none would perish, but that all would come into everlasting life. With that in mind, he'll use everything at his disposal to draw people, including the hardest things in our lives. When you're a parent, you know that the cure for your child's sickness sometimes involves pain and suffering, perhaps a shot. How many of your kids like shots? I don't know any kids that like shots. I don't know too many adults that like shots. But you know that some other treatment may not be enough. But despite the pain it may cause, you do it. And why do you do it? You do it because you love your children. Most often the child doesn't understand. Usually the child doesn't enjoy it, even if he or she understands it even a little bit. But that doesn't keep us from doing it, does it? Whether they understand it or not, whether they like it or not, God knows that the blood of Jesus 
shed on the cross is the only cure for the sickness of our sin. But to bring us to the point where we can reach out and receive that free gift, he often has to break through strongholds. And one of the things he uses is hard circumstances. God does or allows whatever it takes to break our pride, our self-centeredness, our layers of hardness that sin has built up over the years toward him. And breaking us is painful. I think it's painful to us. I think it's also painful to him. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Problem of Pain. We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities. And everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most expensive foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. Remember that when we look at blessing here in a moment. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't that true? I think the same is true for us as believers, as followers of Christ. When we already know Christ, God's goal for us is to sanctify us, to change us into his image. He'll use circumstances, even hard ones, for that too, even in our lives as followers of Christ. The best scriptural example of this is in Hebrews 12, another familiar passage, beginning with verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Remember this beginning of this. It's a word of encouragement, and it addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen. That's not in the scripture. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So for us as believers, let's note some things about God's discipline which are seen in this passage of Hebrews. First of all, discipline's done out of love, and it's done in families. If suffering comes, some people may think that God's angry with them or he's rejecting them. That's not true. Even hardship is part of God's guidance for his children. Secondly, discipline's purpose is our good. We human parents may sometimes have imperfect motives in the discipline of our children. But God's sole concern is our good. He's motivated only by his love for us. Third, God's discipline has a clear goal in view. Through discipline, God helps us to share in his holiness. What an amazing thought, isn't it? What an amazing thought that we can share in his holiness. 
the path to get there sometimes may not be as much fun. Fourth, the end result of God's discipline is sure and certain. Though an extended time may be involved, and our experience during this time might be painful, probably is, we can be absolutely confident that God's discipline does indeed produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. When we understand God's attitude, when we understand his purpose for discipline as seen through the circumstances of our lives, his strength replaces our weakness. Discouragement gives way to hope. And though it may not be easy, and in fact, it seldom is, we can rest in knowing that God is using these things to shape us and to make us holy. The uh, writer and theologian J.I. Packer calls these things God's chisel for the sculpting of our souls. Next in God's love arsenal, we have conviction. Let's take a look at a few things here that might help us see this as a weapon of God's love. Conviction is not a word that's used in Scripture as such very often, but its meaning is conveyed in other words that are used in Scripture. It's a sense of guilt and shame leading to repentance. The word convict or conviction does not show up at all in the King James Version and only nine times in three other versions of Scripture that I could find. The word convince comes the closest to expressing the meaning of conviction, although I think conviction is deeper still. Other words that are used to make the same point about conviction are reprove or rebuke. John chapter 16 beginning with verse 8. That's one classic passage on conviction. It reads, When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because, of the, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. And the world is the object of conviction. A study of this passage shows us that conviction for sin is the result of the Holy Spirit waking up individuals, waking us up. It's a wake-up call to a sense of guilt because of sin and unbelief in our lives. And you know what? More than mental conviction is intended here. There must be some action It should lead to action. The total person is involved. And it should lead to action based on this sense of conviction. And third, the conviction, when it's a work of the Holy Spirit, results in hope, not despair. Sometimes we confuse conviction with condemnation. And the Word tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we confuse conviction with condemnation. Conviction needs to lead to action And that should bring us hope, not despair. Once people are made aware of their separated relationship with God, they're challenged and encouraged to mend that relationship. The conviction not only implies the exposing of sin, and of course we understand how the exposing of sin all by itself could lead to despair, but it also includes a call to repentance, a call to true change, and that's what brings hope. I think it's safe to say that conviction may be the one weapon in God's love arsenal 
that he always uses. Now, he might use it in conjunction with something else, some of these other things that we're looking at. He might sometimes just use it by itself. I think if our heart is soft like the piece of fruit and penetrated by that pin very easily, it may just be conviction. It may be that still small voice. But without conviction, there can be no gift of repentance. And conviction is not the same as conversion, but it's an absolutely necessary component of it. The working of the Holy Spirit is necessary to convince people of the absolute desperation of their situation and their total need for God. The next weapon we're going to take a look at is history. And in many ways, our culture has taken a revisionist view of history, and as a result, it's kind of robbed us of history's meaning and importance, as well as the value of learning from history. So history, all of history, but especially history recorded in Scripture, is something God uses to remind us of his work in the past, uses to remind us of our humanity's pretentious or uh, propensity, excuse me, for foolishness or for sin, and to remind us of God's redeeming power to overcome these things. We are a forgetful people. Anybody here remember everything? I'm not talking about trivia. I'm talking about big things. We're a forgetful people, and God knows that. Book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 5 says, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, as long as I'm alive, is what he's saying here, because I know that I will soon put it aside and our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We see in verse 13 here the phrase, I think it's right, I think it's right to refresh your memory. Other, pass, or other translations say to stir you up by way of reminder. So throughout Scripture, we are admonished, even commanded, to remember. To remember God's loving kindness. To remember His covenant commitment. To remember His promises. To remember His judgment. Remember, remember, remember. It's a theme. It's a theme we see throughout Scripture, and it's an important part of God's love arsenal. The next weapon we'll look at is blessing. I think that's everybody's favorite, isn't it? Anybody not like blessing? You know what? I think this is probably also the weapon that God would choose to use most often. He'd like to use it more often. He might even want to use this one exclusively and never even have to use these other things that we're talking about. But ironically, even though this is the most pleasant weapon that God uses for us to be on the receiving end of, it's more often than not also the most ineffective. And that's not because of God. That's because of us. Think about that. Think about it, parents. How would you prefer to have your child love and obey you? As a result of discipline or pain? Or as a response to your love? and all the blessings 
that come from that. Think of how you responded as a child to the things that your parents gave you and provided for you. Think of how we respond now to blessings, even in our lives as adults. It's the difference between a really young child, maybe a year old or maybe two years old, on Christmas morning, and a child who maybe is three or four or five years old. The really young child hasn't figured out yet that Christmas morning, with all the gifts, can be an orgy of gift opening. But sometimes as kids get older, what do we see? We say they open one present, and then almost before they're done tossing that wrapping aside, what do they do? They grab for the next one and start opening that. You know, if they were to have spoken what their behavior illustrated, they might have said, well, that's nice. Now what's next? I'm ready for more. I believe this illustrates how we often respond to God's blessings in our lives. God's blessing is not designed to make us materialists. It's designed to elicit from us, toward God, a grateful response. That grateful response should lead, ideally, to holy living and lead to faithful service. But instead, our human nature is not only to be ungrateful, but to show contempt for God's blessings, to show contempt for his kindness to us. Romans 2.4 talks about this. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The riches of his kindness. Isn't that a great phrase to wrap your mind around? The phrase means moral excellence or benevolence in action. Both uses of kindness in this verse can mean what is suitable or fitting to a need. God meets our needs. That's one of his blessings. Often he meets those needs in abundance. And our corrupt human nature often treats this kindness, this blessing, with contempt. But this benevolence, this kindness, is meant to be what draws us to him. Or if we know Jesus, if we're already followers of Christ, it's designed to draw us closer to him and teach us gratitude. It's meant to help us realize that we serve a great and mighty God who's worthy of our worship, who's worthy of our obedience. One aspect of God's kindness in this passage leads us to the last of the weapons in God's love arsenal that we'll look at this morning, and that's time. In the understanding of Scripture, this translates to God's patience with us. That's what time's about. His patience with us means he gives us ample time to respond to any of the other weapons of his love. He's used to bring us to him or to shape us and mold us into a holy people. Scripture is clear that time is under God's control. There are many passages of Scripture that say that things happen right on time. Things don't happen too early. They don't happen too late. Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good. Why? For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So there's a proper time. Galatians 4, 4 tells us, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son born of a woman, born under law. Ephesians 1.10 tells us that we'll be 
to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. So times will reach their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So things happen on time. They happen in God's time. The Bible also makes clear that God endures our sin and rebellion against him. Acts chapter 13, verse 18. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert, it tells us. And perhaps the key verse that shows God's redemptive purposes in time and in his patience is 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, another very familiar passage of Scripture. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Though the context of this passage is clearly the second coming of Christ, I think we can apply it here this morning. God's patience, as shown to us, as revealed to us by the passage of time before he brings judgment, is one of his instruments in bringing sinners to himself. Peter gives us a comparison between the divine and the human here. In the verse preceding this, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he tells us that God's so-called lateness or slowness as viewed by some people is only a delay in respect to their time schedules. Our limited understanding of time, not his. In fact, God's time schedule is revealed by his patience. And patience is a major attribute of our Heavenly Father. The Old Testament emphasized that God delayed judgment to allow opportunity for the wicked to repent. We see it again and again when you read the stories in the Old Testament. It's still true today, but all along we see his purpose is redemptive. It's redemptive. Just as that is true with all the other weapons of God's love arsenal that we've looked at this morning. 2 Peter 3.15 says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. The Lord's patience leads toward repentance, which is precisely the point that he made, that Paul made, I should say, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I don't know about you, but I am very thankful that God uses everything he can to bring the lost into his kingdom, especially when I'm praying for people that I love people that I care about, people who are close to me. I, for one, am very glad that God has bigger and better rattlesnakes. Now, sometimes I'm admittedly just a little less thankful that he uses some of these same weapons to make me holy. But ultimately, I'm thankful that his love and mercy are at work through these things in my life to mold me and to shape me into the image and likeness of Christ. Amen? As we go to prayer this morning and finish, it occurs to me that there might be two or three different kinds of people here this morning as far as considering a response. Some of us are praying for those loved ones, and we've been praying for them for weeks, months, years. And we just want to be able to cling to the truth that God uses these weapons and that God loves our loved ones more. We want to hang on to that. We want to hang on to this truth. We want to trust God. Some of us here might be in that boat this morning. And some of those might want to stand and say, yes, I need to hang on to that truth. I need to hang on 
to the fact that God loves my loved ones, the ones I'm praying for. And I'm going to stand and I'm going to pray that God would keep using these things to reach them. There might also be some of us here who really struggle with the idea that God uses these things in our lives too. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Some some of the circumstances are pretty tough. Pain, suffering. How does he use these things in our lives? And we struggle with that. You may want to stand and say, God, help me to see your hand in these things. Help me to see. And then it occurs to me that there's somebody here that might need to be bitten by a bigger, better rattlesnake. That you've never come to Christ. And you've been buffeted by the world. And you have seen pain and suffering in your life. And you've wondered why it's there. And maybe you need to stand this morning and say, I'm giving up. I'm giving up, God. I'm going to return to you. I'm going to come to you this morning. So if you fit into any of those three categories, I'd like you to just stand with me as we pray and pray together that God would minister to each of us. Father God, thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings conviction. Thank you for your love that brings difficult, brings and allows difficult circumstances in our lives to mold us and shape us into your image, and to draw those who don't know you into your kingdom. Thank you, Father, that you are patient with us. Thank you, Father, that you give us your word, things that we can remember so we can be reminded of your faithfulness. We can be reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of repentance that comes through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, first for those who are standing because they've been praying for days, weeks, months, even years for loved ones. And they're having a hard time seeing how your weapons of love, your, go, your love arsenal is at work in the lives of their loved ones. I pray, Father, that you'd give us just a glimpse. And, Father, help us to hang on to the truth that you are indeed working in the lives of our loved ones. And you are indeed drawing them unto you. And, Father God, that you do indeed have a timetable and a plan and a purpose whether we're able to glimpse this immediately or not. Father, help us to trust you in this. Help us to look to you in this. Help us to rely and depend on you wholly and completely in this as we submit our loved ones before you and trust that because you love them more than we do, you will continue to pursue them and you will indeed draw them into a relationship with you. You will do everything. You will use bigger and better rattlesnakes to reach them, Father God. Lord, I pray now for those who are standing because they struggle with the reality that you sometimes use hard things in our lives. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see how those things are being used by you and to respond to the conviction of your Holy Spirit to make needed changes in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of repentance. And we thank you, Father, that you love us enough to use these things to draw us to you. And Lord, now I pray for any of those who are here who need to be bitten by that bigger, better rattlesnake, Lord, because they have been denying you. They have set up a stronghold against you, against your word, against your gospel, against your love and your grace and your mercy. But Lord, this morning, because of your word, they have felt a sense of conviction. And they either want to return to you, Lord, or they want to come to you for the very first time. I pray, Heavenly Father, 
that if there are those here who are praying this kind of prayer, that you would meet them and that you would reveal yourself to them and you would bring them into your kingdom in a very real and a very powerful way. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for these wonderful reminders, Lord God. We thank you for the truth that you love us and that you care enough about us to do whatever it takes to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ and to draw believers into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.